This is A-Lab, and on this, our 19th episode, Andy, Tim, and I are joined by guest Leo to discuss our American gerontocracy, and in particular, the crisis of aging on the state and federal bench. Hope you enjoy. I guess we should introduce, sounds like Leo's been swatted. (laughs) (laughs) By the NLRB. Yeah, I heard heard some scuffling. Um, I guess uh, top of the house, uh, housekeeping item, we should uh, should note that we're joined by a new friend, uh, Leo. Uh, Say hello, Leo. Hi, everybody. Er Everybody. You're already slurring. That's uh, that's, we're off to a good start. (laughs) And uh, the the topic of today's episode is uh, the gerontocracy, specifically the gerontocracy as it relates to judiciary uh, and the crisis of aging uh, that appears to be at least present uh, at the moment, uh, maybe ameliorated somewhat by recent efforts of the Republican Party, but uh, nevertheless present, right? Um, And I think that gerontocracy more broadly uh, is an issue for, for government overall. Uh, but give, this being a law podcast, right, we tend to focus on uh, the legal side. Of I things. mean, the immediate right. thing that everybody has been thinking about this entire year, ever since, you know, the primary got resolved in favor of uh, Biden, is that there was like no way to elect anyone who wasn't going to be like over 80 uh, during their presidency. I mean, I probably would have preferred Bernie, which would have been the issue anyway. But like, we now have... I mean, we had a contest up until, you know, just a, a couple weeks ago that was just two guys who would trail off uh, in the middle of their speeches, get lost in rabbit holes, say ir- irrelevant things, and then be brought back to earth by, you know, an, uh, a kindly aide. Uh, and everybody's just watching the whole of their, you know, the whole of their government run or about to be run by these people who have ultimate power over you and appear to not have a complete grip on what's going but, on. But hey, happy birthday to Biden. It was like yesterday. Okay. <laughs> oh. So now he's 78 or 79. Well, and, and CNN said something like, now he will be the oldest president, as if when the day he wasn't elected, he was the same age. <laughs> right. I, I feel like everybody's given up. Yeah, and it's, it's a wider problem. Uh, I want to say it was New York Times recently that, that showed the average age of House leadership and, and House Democrats. The, the average age of, of a Democrat in the House is 58, and the average age of leadership is 71. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein are, are two kind of heavyweights in, in, the, in Congress uh, that, you know, they're, they're showing their age. Uh, and so it's a problem everywhere in U.S. government, but we're going to focus, obviously, on how it affects the legal system and how it affects our judges. It's also, it's also, I mean, it's worth saying that the average age of Republicans is is significantly lower in Congress, and the mm-hmm. average age of their leadership is significantly lower. But something and the average about... age of their judges is significantly lower. Right. So, so <laughs> something about the difference between the parties, I mean, I'm sure it's just an exercise of power thing, but something about the difference between the parties means that in the Democrat Party, you like uh, are on the liberal side, you accrete some kind of unstoppable momentum that just leads to permanent incumbency until you fucking die in office. The feeling seems to be that hanging on like grim death to every like ounce of power you can get is uh, 
not only okay, but laudable. Like the fact that we ended up with Biden in the first place, you know, choosing this person out of all the available options, um, you know, was a clear, normal sort of Democrat shunt to the oldest person around possible. And so everybody's been living under that anxiety. And then we have another very recent example in the form of... uh, of RBG, different branch, different situation, but just like somebody who held on way too long. Lots of people said it, not just us, that that this was a mistake, and then ultimately, you know, ended up turning over a seat and flipping the court basically forever now uh, to the Republicans. Uh, and now we have Breyer as well. Right, Breyer is is at danger of having that happen. If as long as he can hold on until January twentieth, he won't suffer the same fate. But you know. Well, the, uh, an interesting experiment will be is, you know, on January 22nd, uh, does Breyer make moves to do the right thing? Or, right. Or yeah, that's he better. He better. Yeah. Instantly. As, I mean. as, yeah if, if moves, you mean cardiac arrest. Sure. <laughs> It'd be like an ancient Egyptian where they just bury the old Supreme Court with him and then all his clerks <laughs> go to the afterlife for them. I don't want to get uh, too Supreme Courty here, but you know, I suppose you know the people that all yelled at me uh, two years ago, raising the point about Ginsburg. You know, I, the, McConnell would have never seated a replacement. I suppose you know uh, Breyer is not going to have the luxury of a of a Democratic Congress that will vote in a replacement. So, who knows? I mean, we may have to wait for him to die, die too. Maybe Warnock and Ossoff will win after all. That's why you got to donate. Yeah. i'm sorry i gave all my money to biden's transition i gave him all to amy mcgrath so i don't have any well to you know to be fair to democrats osaf or osaf or whatever his name is is 12 years old so um, (laughs) reversing the trend yeah right yeah there we go so so i mean if you know and you listen to us normally you'll know that we have no intention of sitting on uh talking the whole episode about national politics um, but these are examples that everybody's familiar with and that everybody's been kind of grappling with. And we wanted to use them as an entry point to talk about um, the much wider, larger problem. And we, we, we hinted at the one that exists in Congress, but that's really sort of outside our, our wheelhouse. But there's also one going on in the judiciary, and we're going to talk about it tonight. Yeah, so I, a few weeks or months now back, um, read a story in uh, ProPublica uh, about a, a judge on the Brooklyn Supreme, Sean Diaz Simpson, uh, who had retired, uh, I think, in August for medical reasons, uh, having Alzheimer's. Uh, it's an extremely upsetting story uh, in a very excellent example of long-form shoe leather reporting down in the trenches of, you know, the kinds of muck, mucky, dirty courts that the, that, that the A-Lab crew likes, Brooklyn Supreme. Um <laughs> And I highly recommend uh, reading it. In any event, it concerned uh, a a man named uh, Nelson Cruz, uh, who's been in the New York State penal system since 1998, went in at age 16 uh, on on the back of a a Brooklyn shooting he was convicted of, and he's been in uh, for the past 22 uh, years. Uh, Shondia Simpson uh, is a judge in Brooklyn Supreme, uh, she is, in every respect, kind of the legal success story that 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 Libs and others uh, in the legal media love. You know, uh, uh, a young black woman from the Bayview houses in, in Canarsie uh, went to U Pittsburgh uh, undergrad, U Pittsburgh Law, 
uh, you know, went to become a DA under Charles Hines, made bureau chief, you know, kind of one of these, if you believe the fiction, and she's been written about quite a bit uh, over the years, uh, if you believe the fiction of the, of the, of the noble DA, and I, I think you're going to cancel me, but, you know, I, I do think it's possible, you know, Larry Krasner, for example, to be a decent DA. And in fact, you know, I might even suggest that uh, uh, in some cases, a DA has more uh, ability to kind of do the right thing in any specific case uh, than a public defender. Ability, uh, but... <laughs> guess the addresses yeah. of all the other prosecutors and has yeah. a, has the ability to game the system so he can get off from murder on that. So I guess in that sense, it's true. Yeah, cops yeah. have the ability to not shoot people too. And they... Yeah, but, it, but in theory, in theory, one can be a one can be a do gooder or at least not you know not always do badder uh, in the DA office. Um, and apparently she was, you know, allegedly, at least according to the, to the, to the glossy materials, one of those, you know, if there's not enough case, if there's not enough evidence, or if you feel bad about, uh, the case, you know, let's not go ahead with it. You know, let's not prosecute where it doesn't seem right to not prosecute, et cetera. I, 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 um, I didn't see stuff. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how to find that kind of reputation as a DA, but I think that that reputation is made in terms of, uh, researching this with her as a judge. No, it's it's with her as a judge, but part of it, I mean, part of part of the part of the story about her was that she was always kind of trying to do the right thing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, not one of these, not one of these DAs that was just making convictions everywhere she could, uh, allegedly. Who who put her on the bench? Uh, she's there. She went through the normal process. Yeah. I mean, the Democratic Party machine in Brooklyn oh, puts yeah, you on the elected. bench. Yeah. You run, you you run unopposed usually yeah. <laughs> uh, on the party oh. line for civil court, uh, and then they administratively move you around on the Supreme eventually. Uh, so she followed that exact same okay. kind of path. But uh, usually, you've got to you've got to have trial experience. So it's usually tort lawyers and, and DAs and PDs who who get on these lists, and eventually you work you you, you press enough flesh and raise enough money and. And they'll put you on a ticket somewhere. Um, so that's that's how she she got on the bench. Uh, she was one of the youngest judges at the time uh, of her election. I think uh, late thirties, thirty eight or thereabouts, uh, and and became you know fairly well known for uh, being a decent person. You know, decent for defendants, tough on DAs. Etc. It's hard to tell, you know, kind of again, fact from fiction. You'll go back in the in the books and see in the in the records and see uh, New York Times articles about how fashionable she was. She's someone that, like she was attractive, you know. So I think there may be some marketing there, but uh, allegedly not a bad a bad judge to get. So fast forwarding to 2019, you know, Cruz and and Simpson uh, find themselves on a collision course. Uh, Cruz at this point has been in jail for 22 years. Uh, he, uh, and his conviction, it should be noted, uh, was, uh, he was arrested in the, in the investigation and the conviction were supported, uh, primarily by, uh, this cop named, uh, Lou Scarcella. Uh, Lou Scarcella, uh, you know, is a Brooklyn NYPD cop, so it should go without saying that he's a scumbag. Yeah, but... I know, I know, I know here that Lou Scarcella has his own Wikipedia page. Yeah, that's um, that's section, the sign of a good cop. I section I one. Didn't, I didn't join this podcast for anti-Italianism. I'm I'm bowing out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, 
no, I mean, feel free to feel free to wiki Luis Garcella. Yeah, section one of his Wikipedia says biography. Section two, which has thirteen subsections, is titled investigative misconduct. Well, the, yeah. well, the yeah. New York Times, who we know to you know only write the most hard hitting headlines, wrote a former detective accused of framing eight people for murder is confronted in court. <laughs> like no, no <laughs> mincing of words. <laughs> Yeah, on the Wikipedia page uh, for for Mr. Scarcella for the Nelson Cruz subheader, I do like that it says uh, that he that he forced Cruz to write out a confession so that he could go home. So not even out of you know hatred or racism or anything like that necessarily. Just he was a shitty cop. <laughs> just had a just had a pure gold. Well, and didn't even want OT like a truly shitty cop. That's true. <laughs> well, you know that meme where they say uh, if your lawyer shows up to court dressed like this. Uh, you're going to jail. Uh, if your lawyer shows up to court with Luz Garcella's <laughs> Wikipedia page, you're getting out of jail. Uh, it's, the, it's the necessary corrective uh, to the other meme. Uh, and in fact, that's what happened. So Cruz's case is assigned to Sean Dia Simpson. Uh, they've got Luz Garcella front and center in a single eyewitness shooting uh, conviction on Cruz. And Quite literally, at this point, Cruz's wife is shopping for uh, clothes yeah. for him. Yeah, she brought a bunch, uh, like a change of clothes that day to court. They knew it was over. Yeah. It was over. Brutal. Yeah. It, I mean, there was there was no reason why. Uh, in fact, Simpson had had recently overturned uh, trials uh, involving police shenanigans. Um, she had granted him a hearing, uh, and there was every belief on 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 the side of local media. Uh, Cruz himself, his family, his attorneys. I'm sure uh, Cruz's attorney was doing the thing where he says, all right, legally, ethically, I can't guarantee anything for you, but, but. <laughs> you yeah. get to that level. Right. Well, I, I've, on YouTube, the, the hearing, some of the hearings are on YouTube. Uh, they were covered pretty extensively in local media. I've seen it. Uh, I he I I was looking for some histrionics to pull for the for the sort of audio. Uh, I didn't see a lot of that from him, but you could tell he was pretty. I mean the the the, the jaws the jaws hit the floor uh, when this all finally came to a head. So, but, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So uh, he is granted a hearing in front of Judge Simpson. This is as good as it's going to get uh, for anyone. Uh, she, but then. She starts to become kind of hard to get a hold of. They can't get the hearing scheduled. She's very nice on the phone, but she sort of forgets who they are, etc. Eventually, it takes about a year, but they get a hearing. Uh, there's 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 evidence presented. You know, it, it, there's there's a fair amount of uh, back and forth, and um, she then again kind of I think takes a, a long time to kind of schedule a, a date for the decision, etc. So again, day of the decision. Cruz is there, his lawyers are there, his wife is there with a tracksuit for him to change into when he gets released. Uh, she reads a short statement denying the motion and then stands up and walks out of the courtroom oh, man. Uh, without yeah. saying anything else, oh, wow. uh, <laughs> leaving everyone just kind of slack-jawed, Jesus. wondering what the fuck had happened. What the fuck? <laughs> After several twists and turns, and even a disgraced detective, Nelson Cruz was confident he would be walking out of this courthouse today an exonerated man. But a judge saw differently. 
A judge recently granted Cruz's legal team a new hearing to determine if his conviction should be thrown out. In March, the retired detective who worked Cruz's case, Luis Scarcella, took the stand. Over a dozen Scarcella cases from the 1990s have recently had convictions overturned. After waiting for months for the judge's decision, Cruz was brought into court early this afternoon to learn his fate. The reason the motion um, must be denied. His legal team and his family were in shock and in tears. Really so many tough moments today and also a shocking moment. The judge came out. She gave her initial ruling. The defense really pushed back and then the judge suddenly got up off of the bench and walked out of the courtroom. We were told to come back in about an hour and a half and what we did, the judge maintained her initial ruling that Nelson Cruz will remain in prison for now. She comes back 90 minutes later, and there's some additional discussion, and she sort of maybe agrees to, to, to hear additional uh, uh, re-argument on the matter. Uh, no, no word after that for a year. Uh, Cruz goes to the un, you know, sort of the unprecedented step even of writing to the DA and saying, I know something went wrong here. Like, what, what has happened? Uh, and then uh, a year after the hearing uh, where the decision was rendered, um, uh, Judge Simpson has announced uh, to be retiring for medical reasons, uh, and it is uh, clarified that, in fact, she has uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, during this whole time, apparently the State Judici Commission on Judicial Conduct had been quietly investigating various complaints about her behavior. Uh, her family was well aware that she was, uh, quote-unquote, slipping away. Uh, she would go to Starbucks she always knew where that was, but she could never remember where the car was uh, that she had parked uh, before she had walked in. Uh, she was not showing up to work. Uh, she was uh, forgetting people, et cetera. So uh, Cruz remains, I believe, as of this uh, recording, uh, still in jail. Uh, his case has been assigned to yet another judge, and there's a federal habeas petition pending. But... Um, this is uh, this is quite a story. And again, I, I recommend reading the long form essay at ProPublica on it uh, to get more detail. So I think you know I should note that Simpson is fifty four, which, as we all know, is extremely young and virile uh, and, and <laughs> uh, age <laughs> for for someone to be the best time uh, for posting. Yeah, it's it's literally the prime of one's life. Fifty four is the new forty four, which in turn was was the new. Yeah, 34. I've been hearing that a lot from uh, my buddies who are over fifty. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, you know. The story, I think, really underscores uh, the damage that uh, cognitive decline uh, and cognitive impairment uh, can wreak when it affects uh, a jurist. Yeah, I mean, the summary here is just like incredibly upset expectations. You know, people people have a, have a sense of how things are going to go. They have expectations of what the result will be. They have expectations at least as to uh, a normal kind of proceeding and procedural observances. And it's just a total fucking disaster uh, train wreck uh, instead where nothing right. happens. With, you, you, you can't understand what the fuck just happened. 90 minutes later, it gets more confusing. You can't. Was it definitive? Was it not definitive? Uh, just a fucking mess. 
Yeah, and with with the effect being that a man's freedom or or continued incarceration is what's hanging in the balance. I mean, literally one of the like most you know, kind of valued and precious things that, that our society can take away or give back to somebody and somebody who was by all accounts, uh, uh, not supposed to be there in the first place. Well, and at at baseline, when you walk into a court, you really have no fucking clue what's going to happen to you. You know, like the overwhelming power of the state, you know, it's got its hands around your neck and then you realize you're dealing with a judge who's completely unreliable. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so and so even though I, I agree, though, that, that even though this is an outlier in the sense that um, Shundia Simpson was not, uh, you know, she was not advanced in age necessarily. It certainly does illustrate what happens when stuff starts to go off the rails because the, uh, uh, the your judge is experiencing cognitive decline. And so this this is something that, you know, she's not the first or only example of this. She's not even the perhaps the, the you know the highest or most prominent. Um, so there are other stories about this. If you just Google, you know, judge senile, judge uh, uh, Alzheimer's stuff like that, you can run into just a total bevy of these stories. Like if you think that well, the system worked because there was this inquiry into her on the on the Commission on Judicial Conduct. Uh, so that means that you know everything works out. It's just somebody needs to to flag it. Well, we've got some stories for you. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you what that that is a the the real outlier, the real way in which her case is an outlier is that somebody fucking did something about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah Over yeah. here. Let me tell it for a minute. Back at you now. Yeah. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. Are these the hardest shoes to fill, y'all? So in this country, every 65 seconds, somebody is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I Googled it and figured out what the, what the number is. And it turns out that every single one of these fucking people is on the bench. <laughs> so if you have a case that goes to court, you are 100% fucked. So here's, here's a, this is a story about a federal district court. The one I'm going to tell here is a guy named Richard Owen. He's a district court judge in Manhattan. So he's 84 years old, and he's hearing some kind of business case. Uh, the articles I read about it didn't really say much about the case, and I didn't bother to go on pace or anything. But it's some kind of contract case or whatever. Uh, the best kind of right. case. Business <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the old there, business the, case. The, the chicken definition case where you got to figure out what the word chicken means in a contract. Right. So there's this hearing to discuss uh, – an apparent leak of documents under a protective order. So when you, if you're not a lawyer, uh, when parties start producing documents to each other, you usually have them under a protective order so that they can only be used underneath the, you know, the purposes for that they're produced for in litigation. Um, but apparently some, you know, a leak of some documents had resulted. And so these documents were perhaps made public, you know, appearing in news sources or whatever. And so, there's this hearing to address well, what the fuck happened. How did these things get out? Okay, they were only passed between the people in this room, so what happened? Um, so the lawyers are uh, making their presentations to the court, and they're talking about uh, these things called emails, which you may have heard of. Uh, <laughs> and the judge is, you know, wa- you know, ping-ponging between the two of them, and then he has to butt in, and he goes, so what What the hell are you guys talking about? Is this a, what is, so an email, this, what is it? I'm trying to read his quote here. So it pops up. In a machine on some administrative office? Is, is somebody there with a duty to take it around and give it to whoever it's named to? 
<laughs> now this is you know this is in like the fucking 2000s right so even i know what email is email so you gotta imagine the fucking just primal fear in the attorneys as they realize right <laughs> we're, we're not talking submitted here yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah like well they would have had to have submitted a brief that probably has the word email in it 400 times right so all your expectations about how the law works and how the law is going to apply to the facts and everything you told your client, you could throw all that shit out the fucking window because now you're dealing with somebody who doesn't know what the fuck is going on. And so you have to th- start thinking about like, well, we maybe need to settle this case because I thought it was a winner, but I don't know what's going to happen uh, after this. So this guy's fucking losing it up there. I will say, I don't know if you guys have been in this situation before, but I, I have had a number of technically complex cases that I've tried to present to judges. And I will say that, like, while that is a terrifying situation, it's also, like, sometimes you just get a judge who doesn't know shit about technology. And it might they might as well have fucking Alzheimer's because you're trying to explain something to them that you've been learning about for four years. You know, some complex piece of equipment or software. And, you know, look, they read, your expert summarized it to you. You summarized it to the judge. The clerk summarized your summary, and then the judge read it for five fucking minutes, and now you're giving complex arguments about it, and they just they don't know what you're talking about. It's a perfect system, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. So this this was a disturbing event. Um, it was also doubly disturbing because Judge Owen's most famous case uh, was the, the, the trials of a particular Silicon Valley investment banker, Frank Quattron, and it was all predicated on email. That entire... You know, I've said this before. I'll say it again. Um, 90% of my job is telling people to stop fucking emailing <laughs> at, at my corporation. The whole reason I have that job is because of the Quattrone case. Oh, really? No, he's the... Oh, I see what you're saying. He's the quintessential example right. of stop fucking emailing shit. Like, Quattrone, was a, that was a famous case. Right. So that was, that was this guy's most famous case. So you can imagine... <laughs> What happens to attorneys in front of him when he says, well, I don't know what you're talking about. What's a fucking email? You know, and the clerk's looking up at him like, didn't you? What do you mean? I sent you an email <laughs> this morning. So this guy's also having other problems. He he stumbles when he's handing down his life sentence to a uh, drug dealer. Uh, and the particular facts of the case make clear that he's he's losing steps. Um, the, the drug dealer has a connection to a robbery crew, and the robbery crew apparently murdered some people in a Bronx apartment. Um, so it's a conspiracy case. There's no allegation that this guy murdered anybody, but what they're saying is, look, you helped them take a step. You were uh, have, you, you were sleeping with one of the, the tenants in the apartment, and you let them into the building, and so the murders are kind of on you. The accusation is that he gave them access to the apartment, uh, and the prosecutor had used this metaphorical phrase to link him to the crime, saying he was the key into that apartment. So the guy gets convicted, uh, and then in sentencing... Uh, Judge Owen there says, and then you gave a key to these people to get into the apartment. And so you can't have factual mispronouncements at a sentencing. It's not, it's like, it's always going to be the basis for an appeal. If the judge makes clear that they don't understand what the fuck happened, then it makes pretty clear that there's probably a problem with the trial. So, uh, so, so the lawyer, the lawyer, you know, try to explain, well, judge, there there was no actual key. It's, it's, it's not that there wasn't, there wasn't a key. And so the judge just kind of waves it off and he, he doesn't seem to notice that he got a critical fact of the case wrong. And then he starts getting mad at the attorneys about the counts. The jury, the, the jury didn't convict on enough counts. And then the attorneys are trying to like set him straight about what, what happened at the trial. 
uh, and this is in the middle of sentencing this guy to jail for fucking life, right? I mean, the judge right. is just, there's an 84 year old guy just bobbling up there. Uh, it, well, and, it could have been worse. He could have, he could have dismissed the case on lack of personal jurisdiction because the U.S. courts don't have jurisdiction over literal keys. So. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You're sitting there waiting to like find out what's going to happen to your, you know, the rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. And this guy's up there, like, you know, saying his order for an Egg McMuffin into the fucking monitor. <laughs> I've been blind for a while now. I just got the key, they let me in. No ID, doors opening up for me and now I see. I've been blind for a while now. I've been blind for a while now. I've been blind. Hey! Every single goddamn day, nigga, thank you next to Dicky, next to who? Tomato, mustard, mayonnaise. Nigga, better catch up, catch up, catch up, catch up. Right, yeah. So so if you think that uh you know the Supreme Court would would surely be better at stopping at this stuff, let me uh tell you how they handled William O. Douglas. My favorite my favorite Supreme Court judge. <laughs> he is actually I mean, as far as Supreme Court justices go, he's one of the better ones. Um I believe FDR appointed him to the court. Uh, and Wikipedia citing time calls him the most doctrinaire and committed civil libertarian ever to sit on this court. On this court, sorry. Uh, his biography, Go East, Young Man, is pretty good too, uh, as an aside. Um, but he served into the 70s, and in 1974, he suffered a stroke. Uh, and like this might sound familiar, uh, his duty to the Supreme Court meant that despite being completely debilitated by this stroke. Oh, he decided no. to, to stay on for life. Uh, oh. Medical issues be damned. Oh, um, and so Jeff Jacoby wrote in 2000, actually uh, when William Rehnquist was saying that he wasn't going to step down, uh, use William O. Douglas to kind of illustrate uh, the issues with this stuff, is that you know he would be visibly in pain while uh, attorneys were, were litigating before the Supreme Court. Uh, he would frequently speak in non-sequiturs, and he would doze off during arguments. I went and looked on Oye because they, um, they have transcripts for, for all these cases. He really didn't ask any questions other than just asking to repeat stuff again. But from accounts from that time, it sounded like he, he was, was truly well and gone while deciding, you know, law that would be would be the final say for for everyone in the country. And so what had to happen awesome. the the this the the process for the Supreme Court <laughs> to get judges like this off the court was that uh all of them got together and essentially said to William O Douglas, "Look, we are not going to let you write any opinions. We are in fact not going to count your vote on any 5-4 decision in which you're the the majority vote. Like we will literally not let you decide cases. Uh, and it was only <laughs> after that, that uh, William Douglas decided to step down. You know, I read that he holds the record for the most opinions. I don't know if that's true or not, but it also said he holds a number of records. And then I looked in that he was married four times. So he definitely fucked. He <laughs> fucked course. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he was, he, I, there are other, uh, <laughs> liberties that he took with the Supreme Court. He said he was a committed civil libertarian. And I think there's no better evidence of his libertarian yes, streak than his four marriages to increasingly younger yeah, women. Yeah, I was going to say with an age gap in, in several decades. Um, a true hero. But, but yeah. regardless, yeah, regardless, he was he was eventually essentially kicked off the court by uh, virtually unanimous consent from all the other judges um, because they were really just going to leave him in the dust. 
Uh, but that did not stop him. After he, he left, just kept showing up. Yeah, like, he just kept showing up. After John Paul Stevens was was admitted to the court, he basically got angry that those clerks got assigned him. He's like, "What the hell are you doing in my office?" And so they just kind of let him be pretend Alzheimer's judge uh, for another year <laughs> until <laughs> they just let him come hang around. Yeah, he was just yeah. just hanging out until he tried to get into the hearing for a case, Greg v. Georgia, which I believe was a a death uh, a death sentence hearing. He was angrily trying to get into that hearing, and they were like, "All right, this is this is over. We can't let this old man." Yeah, I mean, hey man, he we got to pull the plug here, at that point. You know, he was in his eighties or nineties. Uh, and so after that, they, he finally was able to let go. Um, but he was not the only one who, who went soft on the bench. Uh, Jeff Jacoby, who, by the way, uh, that's the same Jeff Jacoby whose son ran away. He was the Boston Globe contributor whose son ran away and uh, went to go hang out with the, the green M&M in Times Square. That poor uh, kid. <laughs> oh, this is uh, – Chapo is, documented uh, pretty extensively. Yeah, uh, yeah, Chapo documented. This is one of their way earlier episodes. But, yeah, he had a son – uh, he's this shitty conservative writer who would write like, hey, son, you should probably stop being so fat like every year for like Christmas. Like, oh, just, yeah, like, he would like diary his to his son. It's really yeah. awful. And eventually when that kid became like 14 or 16, he ran away from Boston all the way down to Times Square. Uh, they didn't know where he was for like several days and they just they found him at the M&M store. I'm, I'm guessing hanging out with the green M&M and trying to get her to prom or something. But in, in this article, I think he 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 sums up pretty well. Uh, over and over, the storyline's been repeated, he writes. A Supreme Court justice suffers serious mental decline but refuses to step down. By the start of the 1880 term, Nathan Clifford had been reduced to a babbling idiot, which back in the you know 19th century they weren't as uh, woke. You get canceled for stuff like that. Yeah, he's quoting. Uh, That's what they called him. Uh, yeah. That was a medical term back then. Yeah, that was a medical term. Yeah, so, I mean, clearly senile. You know, the, the senility didn't really exist as a medical concept back then. But obviously, he said, uh, the fellow justice wrote, he did not know me or anything, and though his tongue framed words, there was no sense in them. So you can imagine, <laughs> if you thought not knowing an email is a is a, a heck of a hurdle to argue against, imagine a judge just babbling nonsense at you and trying to argue with them about a contract. Uh, Joseph McKenna was so far gone that, that Chief Justice Howard Taft said in 1922 that he wrote an opinion deciding the case one way, where there had in fact been a unanimous vote the other, including his own. Uh, which, again... <laughs> I don't, I don't know how you square that circle. <laughs> oh but, uh, and this is, again, this is the Supreme Court. This is not traffic court in the fucking, you know, Nassau County. Like, this is, this is supposed to be the final say in American law. And some <laughs> jackal <laughs> is just writing just, just nonsense. Just he just draws a big fucking coming yeah. dick and then signs the bottom yeah. of it. Thinking that he's writing an opinion. Uh, <laughs> Taft, but said, Taft himself yeah, was, a, was a longtime server. Yeah. yeah, and he said in 1929 that he's older and slower and less acute and more confused, which is a hell of a lot more than about 90% of justices uh, were able to say from themselves. Uh, but he said, in fact, that he was going to hang on to the end of time so that he could prevent the Bolsheviki from getting control of her laws. <laughs> <laughs> An amazing patriot. Uh, and it's not the last time. That's it's- actually the Joe Biden uh, value Yeah, basically, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think it's worth – I mean, it's it's you have to connect the stuff that you just said up to the present. Like, sorry, but RBG yeah. was falling asleep at the State of the Union, right? Right. Like, that's not that's not just she, – she said that she would, had been drinking and that's what had happened. But, I mean – 
when grandma does that, when she's falling asleep at the graduation, <laughs> you kind of know something's up. And when she's out there saying that Colin Kaepernick's a hip hop style thug, like it's it, she's she's saying stuff that she doesn't necessarily fully know. Right, right. Um, Especially when you get the. I mean, this this looks very similar from a lot of these cases. Like, like if you remember back to Shundia Simpson, she she says one thing and then comes back in the court ninety minutes later and is like, okay, yeah, well, maybe like, I'll oh, walk yeah. that back. Right. The same thing happened with RBG. Right. With the Kaepernick thing, she says she says the stupid comment and then later is like, oh, I guess I shouldn't have commented. I'm sorry, but that kind of instant withdrawal is a symptom like this. Yeah. Also, I would say uh, going to a wedding not wearing a mask uh, when a deadly pandemic is raging and you are 88 <laughs> years old and you and you know that you're and immediately like, dying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and people are still rooting for you, like as if you are some kind of saint. I mean, it's you know, like you guys know, you know, this podcast knows it's true of the law that you uh, just keep failing upwards. But like once you become a judge, it's like doubly or triply true. You know, it's like it's hard to get there. It's Absolutely. a threshold, but when you reach it, it's just it's just bizarro logic. Anything you do, yeah. you know, nobody can touch you. Yes, yeah, perfect. And it's she anyway. failed right into the grave. So <laughs> I don't know. This doesn't. We're about to transition. Um, doesn't necessarily have to go in, but I do want to. I just I I double checked this. Um, the uh, the title of the uh, Quattrone e- uh, email at issue uh, in the Quattrone case was time to clean up those files. (laughs) 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 Time to destroy evidence. Okay. Little, little, little practice point for you out there. If you happen to be listening, don't fucking ever send a fucking email like that. Oh my God. Pick up the phone. Quattrone is probably a a, a, a bigger force uh, in the uh, in the field of in-house corporate law than uh, than RBG was. Uh, anyway, um, but uh, we're talking about this because, uh, like, the federal bench in particular uh, is facing something of a crisis of aging. Right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. if, if this is about as old as the bench has been in. in quite some time yeah uh right now it looks like about 12 percent of the 1200 federal judges are over 80 uh summer yeah a, a few are over 90 and at one point there was somebody that was over 100 years old appointed by jfk hearing cases <laughs> jfk <laughs> yeah. a man who died um, 50 years ago the average age uh currently is 69 <laughs> uh, I, i'm i'm not I, i'm seriously not going for the cheap 69 420 style joke but it is literally at this point 69 yeah. worth noting especially considering our audience now now just Doing some math here, if we got 1,200 sitting judges, uh, and we know you know a lot of their ages, look, statistically, 13% of people over 65 and almost 50% of people over 80 develop Alzheimer's or dementia. So you know that that population, they're not exempt from that. It's hitting them too. Yeah. So you have this baked-in chance to win in the hundreds of federal yeah. judges reaching these advanced ages. You're rolling the dice, and maybe you're going to get lucky, and uh, and your judge is just going to start asking, what the fuck is an email on the on the bench? Uh, when I was at the Second Circuit, just starting out uh, years ago, um, there was a guy named Ellsworth Van Grafland uh, on the bench in the circuit. Uh, I don't know how old he was, but he would... Uh, 
demonstrably at, at points during oral argument for lawyers turn off his hearing aid and spin his chair uh, sort of <laughs> faced uh, the, the, the guys arguing when he'd had enough. At one point, I, remember, I was watching argument up there, and he, uh, start, he, he stopped the argument to ask the uh, uh, counsel arguing one side or the other, um, are you wearing an earring, son? Is that an <laughs> earring you're wearing? What are you, a girl? Oh, nice. And, you know, no, I swear to God, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, and and everybody just acted like it was completely normal. But the guy was like one million years old and just, you know, completely out to lunch. So I've seen this firsthand uh, from literally my first day in the profession. Uh, well, I, just, I think that's a just, good example to talk about what what's missing and probably what what should be obviously included what should actually exist which is that the federal judiciary has no formal policy requiring or even recommending that judges get you know medical exams psych exams cognitive checkups as they reach certain age milestones nobody's looking at this the the, the entire process for getting grandma off the road here is totally informal okay so judges end up like taken up the task themselves and they work discreetly behind the scenes so that so there, there was another ProPublica article about uh senility in the judiciary and they and they profiled judge easterbrook judge easterbrook uh if you've if you've gone to law school at all you're very familiar with a lot of his decisions in the seventh circuit uh but judge easterbrook so he, he's on the seventh circuit and so he would encourage attorneys uh you know if if you if you think a judge is having trouble give me a call uh, let me know discreetly, and then he would kind of take it upon himself to like investigate and then shepherd them, you know, and encourage them to go get you know cognitive testing done, and then perhaps you know has uh, has helped take a few off the bench, you know, who perhaps were were declining. Um, but that, which is why Judge Posner left the second it was clear that he was going to go down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Frank Easterbrook is seventy-two, though. right? Anyway, but who's going to watch the Watchmen? <laughs> yeah. but that that is the fucking plan, right? Like we did an episode a couple uh, a, a little while back about uh, the Michigan guys and talking about how fucking disorganized they were. This is really high stakes, and this is the yeah. fucking plan. Look, just as a, as an attorney, risk your fucking career to go report on your judge and call <laughs> and and yeah. And, yeah. Try to convince one of their colleagues that the guy is losing it, or the the, the woman is losing it, uh, and then hope to God that that doesn't blow back on you, or that they don't just call them and go, "Do you know what this guy before you and, just told?" And me. don't like truck drivers have to like have GPS monitors that they can't fuck with in their <laughs> right. trucks, making sure they don't drive more than twelve hours a day or something. Like everybody, right. everybody's being surveilled to make sure that they're doing their jobs and yeah. taking yeah. urines and shit like that. Flight attendants too. <laughs> no, it's no, true. it's a good point. At this point, especially when you have other people's lives in your hands like this, you're just not special. I'm sorry. Yeah, of course, you have lots. Of, you have intellectual dependence, but like to a point, it should probably be policed. And these are the people who are assessing whether your conduct was reasonable or what you thought or what you meant when you said or did something. These are the people that are enforcing laws against you for failure to arrange your affairs or comply with the law or something. These are the people that are determining whether your conduct made sense or not. And there is a significant percentage of them that are experiencing cognitive decline and might just walk out and say, I don't know what to think about this, but the easy thing is you're fucking guilty. You know, so like all the evidentiary rulings are going to go, you know, in the government's way 
or you know they'll just take a shit on your civil case uh and, <laughs> just, and you just have, you're just gonna be left like what the fuck maybe literally what the fuck just some of the stories How do we get here? Like, why is there ultimate life tenure in the in the Constitution for judges uh, that leads to this, you know, kind of collegial looking the other way? Uh, and then the only people who are supposed to explain or inform on them are people who are under their ultimate power thumb uh, litigating before them. The, the reason is, you know, every liberal's favorite uh, founding father is Alexander Hamilton. So this is Federalist Paper number 79. He also addresses it in 78, but uh, we're only going to talk about 79. Um, Regarding New York at the time had a 60-year age limit for judges. And speaking about that, he says this is nonsense. There is no station for which it is less proper than that of a judge. And his his point is that, look, nobody, this is back in the 1700s, because nobody lives that long anyway. Listen, nobody yeah. outlives, he, would, he says, the season of intellectual vigor. And and it's totally improbable that any considerable portion of the bench uh, is going to be, you know, in a, in a senile position at the same time. So we... Yeah, we're all dying at 30 of symptoms. Yeah, this is never going to no. fucking... Look, I'm going <laughs> to... It's not an issue at all. I'm headed out back to get shot. I mean, die at your peak. Like, go out like James Bean, you know? <laughs> yeah. Not like Stan Chera. <laughs> I'm going to go get fucking shot in 10 minutes. So, like, you know, life is cruel right now. So, in his mind, look, we got to think about taking away a man's livelihood, okay? It's ought to have a, he says, ought to have some better apology. He was to, he was the first guy against anti-cancel culture stuff. He says, it ought to have some better apology to humanity than is to be found in the imaginary danger of a superannuated bench. Well, guess what bitch yeah. there's a lot of shit you didn't imagine <laughs> looks like we looks like we imagineered that uh, superannuated yep. bench after all yeah. American ingenuity does it again well and, and what's what's really sort of striking about it is that you know at least as far as the federal bench is concerned and uh, issues with aging it's not, it, there is an answer and it exists and it's law in more than half the states. You know, there there are mandatory retirement ages in more than half of the state courts, something like 33 when I when I looked it up. Um, with that said, it's 70, 70, you know, back, you know, back to Andy's statistic about Alzheimer's. It's like it's still a problem. And uh whether it's ageism or whatever you want to call it, people do not want to increase the mandatory retirement age where it exists. And judges have been trying, like, been going hog wild trying to increase the age limit. I think because of the pensions, you know. Um, but <laughs> New York tried to do it um, a while ago. Let me see. It was it was in 2013, not that long ago. Uh, in a ba- in a ballot measure, and it went down in flames. You know, they wanted to increase it from. They tried to increase it seventy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, those ten crucial years where like your 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 children really don't want to fucking see you. Uh, so you need something <laughs> to fucking do. You know, begs the question: like, 
I mean, I, if if I had a parent that was like working themselves to death, I would just be like, you know, fucking retire. I'm going to pull you out and I'm going to put you in the fucking study or, you know, like, you know, the sunroom and you're just going to hang out there um, and stop ruining people's lives. But I digress. Uh, there have been efforts also in Ohio, Louisiana, Hawaii, Pennsylvania to increase the age. Now, at least I'll say this, Vermont has been really farsighted uh, by capping judicial service at age 90. (laughs) 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 Like, you want to, you know, wasps live for fucking ever. Um, (laughs) Especially in Vermont. (laughs) Yeah, that's... (laughs) Look at your boy Bernie. It's, It's all that hiking, yeah. So, I mean, why do judges hate the limits so much? I don't know. But, you know, looking into this, it actually made it to the Supreme Court in 1991. Um, and Sandra Day O'Connor, who was 61 at the time and eventually retired at 76, uh, the, the, the judges of the great state of Missouri, uh, they sued under the Age uh, you know, Discrimination Act and... Uh, the Sandra Day O'Connor said that the the Missouri people rationally could conclude that the threat of deterioration at age 70 is sufficiently great and the alternatives for removal from office sufficiently inadequate that they will require all judges to step aside at that age. And she goes on, you know, very sensibly saying uh, judges have an important enough and central role in life that their performance is subject to greater public scrutiny and it's a common Mm -hmm. sense obvious point obviously people Mm -hmm. can can conclude that this is a danger and set a cap it's the most reasonable thing it's what should have fucking happened probably with the constitution yeah you know and my theory is just like we're we're sliding into this you know world of meritocracy and elitism that people are just defending their friends you know and it's getting harder and harder to hold them accountable. You know, why else? You know, 30 years ago, we get a decision where Sandra Day fucking O'Connor says something reasonable, and now nobody will raise their voices about anything. And it's interesting because, you know, mostly, you know, usually when the Supreme Court rules that a major employment discrimination statute, in this case, the Age Discrimination Employment Act, doesn't apply to you. It's Katie bar the door to start discriminating against you, right? Uh, right. You know, it's a, it's an open discrimination. Like, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like anybody's taken the uh, uh, hint here uh, and uh, uh, taken her up on the invitation to start age discriminating <laughs> against, employ- against judges. That's a good point. No, no, no. It's in fact, in fact, these these guys are just fucking running rampant. I mean, now there are a number of you know, procedural structures that are enabling this, right? So uh, on the federal bench, all judges get a budget to hire two clerks. Um, So everybody gets two clerks at least. And these guys do all the writing. They do the legwork. They summarize. They do the shit work and the record prep. And they they get everything to you in a digestible format, which can allow a declining judge to proceed, you know, perhaps – longer than they otherwise would. I'm not saying they shouldn't have that aid. I'm just saying that it it enables them and perhaps allows them to lean heavier and heavier on the clerk. I have absolutely been in trials. I think I talked about it once on this podcast where the judge was like just kind of taking a snoozer almost after uh, after the lunch hour and it was like clearly leaning on the clerk. There's a there's there's a case I don't think it's mentioned in the outline, but there was a case not too long ago uh, that hit the media 
where a judge also Alzheimer's, I think, was behind it eventually, uh, actually uh, let her clerk wear the robe. <laughs> uh, the ro- <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> I'm not joking. Uh, and and ru- it was running, uh, was running the court. It's only fair. So, only fair. Yeah. Well, honestly, I, you know, some people say she has Alzheimer's. I just say she's being honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cook County Judge Valerie Turner raised eyebrows when she let Clerk Rhonda Crawford wear her robes and preside over three cases last summer. She also raised the ire of Cook County court officials who took Turner off the bench. Now, this disclosure by Turner's attorney. She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in November. I think the key question is how long has the judge suffered this mental disability? CBS2 legal analyst Irv Miller says that could impact how many of Judge Turner's past litigants could ask for a new hearing, something they can do by petitioning the circuit court in Markham, where Turner worked. Either the litigant himself or that person's attorney could come in and file a motion saying, hey, listen, I don't think I got a fair shake here because this judge had some issues. Uh, I I want a real judge. The Judicial Inquiry Board has filed a complaint against Turner, who's been on medical leave since August. But Rhonda Crawford, the clerk, has been indicted for the conduct she addressed this fall. I did not sign my name on any judicial orders. Miller says Crawford's law license has also been suspended. None of this, he says, a common occurrence. It is troubling, but frankly, there's another part that's more troubling. And that is a lot of lawyers were saying, hey, listen, wait a second. This law clerk got indicted for this, but the judge that gave her the robes and stood over her didn't get indicted. Why is that? I think now we know. Yeah, so the, so judges can also take senior status, and that adds manpower to the court. Senior status means that you you know you still draw money. Uh, you no longer are exactly a judge on the court, and your seat is available to be filled. But um, everybody has cases with senior judges if you litigate regularly, and the senior judge just sort of works as much as they want. They might take an ADR case uh, that's an alternative distri- uh, dispute resolution, so a little less formal, just kind of trying to mediate between two parties before they end up at trial. Um, and and they'll take on you know a lesser caseload, or they might take on only a certain type of caseload. Um, Things that aren't deemed important. Right. Right. Such as habeas corpus petitions, right. a.k.a. Uh, the Great Writ. Right. Things that can be decided only on motions, like habeas. Yeah. <laughs> for those, for those not, for those not uh, informed in the ridiculous pig Latin of lawyering, uh, and I say pig because we're all cops. Um, uh, habeas habeas corpus is the petition for post conviction relief by persons incarcerated largely because their constitutional rights were violated now they're deemed low value high volume in the federal courts because there's a lot of them and you know people in jail don't have a lot to do uh, so they file them but one might argue that adjudication uh, and consideration of habeas corpus petitions is among the highest functions uh, of a judge uh, as i said the the, the Colloquially, habeas is referred to as the Great Writ, uh, but um, and if, and these are people that are people's liberty at issue. Yeah, instead you can see they're just treating it like shit or work to farm out to the Alzheimer's guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> give, it, give it to the old guy who doesn't know where his fucking pants are. So yeah. if I we apologize if for some reason you are incarcerated and you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> uh, we don't mean to make light of your fate, but you, I'm sorry. <laughs> know what's going on? Yeah. 
And, and there's a lot of these judges. I don't know how many of these we're going to go through. I collected a bunch. But so there's like a, a there was a, a Judge McWilliams who was, he, this guy was 94 years old, uh, appellate judge, doesn't write opinions, uh, leaves everything to the other judges he, he's on the panels with, uh, but he still votes. Yeah. They let him yeah. push the button, basically. <laughs> right. Yeah. Judge Shabazz, uh, he was in the Eastern District of Wisconsin, um, and he used to uh, go through a lot of his cases quickly. Um, he was a strict sentencer uh, in criminal cases, and he was in his real 70s. hard ass. Yeah, yeah, hard ass. You know, somebody that that throws the book at you um, whenever he can. Uh, the sentencing yeah, book, if you can not, not the criminal book, the sentencing book. It's a separate mm-hmm. book, but. He was in his 70s, and the attorneys that were that were getting him as a judge realized he couldn't get through the plea agreement in a hearing. You know, he was taking his time on, on reading any document. Uh, and at one point, there was somebody who was getting a 20-year sentence, and he just kind of reads it off. I mean, uh, in the in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, criminal uh, procedure. judges – sorry, <laughs> yeah, criminal procedure uh, – judges have to offer convicted defendants the, the chance to ask for mercy before they get sentenced. Uh, and he just blows right through that, and he's like, "Oh, whoops! Uh, sorry about the twenty years. Uh, do you want to ask for mercy?" And, <laughs> uh, and then after that, just just reimposes the same sentence. Um, so he's, he's just it just shows he's on autopilot. He's just like he's just completely out to lunch, just like not even just reading off a fucking piece of paper. Uh, that obviously got reversed, um, and then Easterbrook, I think, saw that and and tried to get him off the court. Yeah, that got that. bounced up to him, and he took him off. There was another guy in Utah, uh, Judge J. Thomas Green, um, and so he was he started to become known for these impulsive outbursts. Now, losing your filter is also a common sign that the brain's ability to self censor is is degrading, and so there's these stories of this guy questioning a jury pool in a trial. And uh, the defendant is a guy who's accused of lying about the disappearance of a young girl. Um, he asks the jury pool, does anybody in here know each other? It's a common question you have to ask because friends aren't supposed to serve together on a jury. Uh, you're not supposed to know anybody else. So one guy says, oh, yeah, I know that girl over there. And she goes, oh, I didn't recognize you. Yeah, I do know him. And the judge says, she didn't recognize you with your clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy also hits, uh, he's, He's sentencing, this is a really weird one, he's sentencing this serial bank robber, uh, this guy who has, you know, robbed and been convicted of robbing a bank before, and he says, listen, maybe I'm kind of crazy to give you this this sort of break twice, but I got a feeling about you. <laughs> so then he gives less than half of the recommended time in the sentencing guidelines, so... Yeah, King. Yeah, I mean, I mean awesome. It's fucking, yeah. It fucking rocks, but... War judges should do it that way. Right, it was enough for the prosecutors to go I mean, uh, to tap the appeals yeah, court. Now, say, now you're now you're in right trouble. and say, yeah, exactly. "Your honors, I think there's a problem down here." Yeah, time's up, motherfucker. In 2001, the Ninth Circuit they set up this uh, they set up this confidential helpline for judges. And the idea was that when you're in a life tenure, career terminating, top of your career uh, position, you know, there's nobody you can respect as an equal. There's there's not many people who are on an equal level to you. And so what they wanted to do was set this up so that way judges had somebody to confide in. Because if you go 
you know, start seeing a therapist or I, I don't know, if you start confiding in people that perhaps you're having, uh, yeah. you know, mental health issues, depression or whatever, stuff that like there's no reason to remove somebody from the bench because they're having a, you know, they're having a hard time or something. Yeah, or uh, addiction or something like that. Right, yeah. right. So Yeah, so anything. Right. I mean, it's, like, it's a confidential help. Right, but right, but you can imagine how litigants might seize on uh, the fact that their judge is having such an issue mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to challenge yeah. the result that comes down in their case. And so they set up this confidential line. And what they found... Expecting people to be, like, confessing their alcohol. Yeah. Or, you know, but that. instead, what they got, they found out they were trying to solve the wrong fucking problem because all the calls that they got were just judges reporting on other elderly people going, this guy has no fucking idea. He's like, he's <laughs> he's, he's administering a hearing in the fucking bathroom. He's fucking, <laughs> yeah, he's losing he's fucking it. losing it. <laughs> Well, it's I, – I mean, I looked this up. There are 30,000 state judges in the U.S. and 1,700 federal judges, and they only get, what you said, a handful of calls. Yeah, and the, all of the, the only calls they get are about – The right. narcs. The judges who are narcs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Don't snitch. So from that, that should tell you that, like, they're looking at the wrong problem here, right? They need to, they need to solve this. But they, there are no formal processes for this. You know, you can try to, you, you, you can, you can technically, you could technically impeach a judge for mental incapacity and that shit hasn't happened for fucking 200 years. Okay. Judges aren't going to do it to their peers. Nobody wants to see it happen to them. So there, there's enough collegiality. They're not going to do it. Look, I, I'm a lawyer. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not, I don't have a fucking suicide wish to try to chase down a judge and get him kicked off the bench. Yeah, because if you're wrong, your entire career is is basically shot. No, you're gonna have to right. move to a different state or something. Or if you're right and somebody decides that you're fucking wrong. Yeah, so it, it gets to this informal process, and you can see with with William O. Douglas, like it works to an extent at the Supreme Court because there's nine of them, and it's small right. enough, and yeah, you can, and you they can all have gig a, up on the one guy. They have a vested interest in kind of maintaining some kind of respectability of the court. Like that's. The entire power of the Supreme Court is that it's a respectable institution. And so if seven yeah. of them are, are a bunch of loonies that are babbling to themselves, they're not going to have the, you know, any power to, to stop the president or That's Congress right. when they need to. Um, but that doesn't matter in state court or, or federal court or, you know, anywhere that isn't there, like the, that, that, yeah. that interest diminishes greatly. And, you know, I've said this in other contexts, but, you know, I truly respect uh, lawyers with the balls to kind of, kick out at authority figures in the elite, right? But if you want to start dragging a judge through the mud <laughs> as a lawyer who's appearing before yeah, that judge, uh, that's brass balls uh, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Not, not to mention that the only instance in which that would happen, I would presume, is if you were 100% certain that you mm-hmm. would have at least a shot at it. So... You know, some of the more subtle ways in which mental decline would kind of very adversely affect somebody, you know, especially in like a criminal context or something, you know, you would I would imagine most lawyers that were not crazy and would have the predilection to file as against any judge that rules against them would have to kind of go through a mental checklist and be like, well, did I do this right? You know, is there some other alternative explanation? And only when it arrives at, you know, a judge saying, you know cut down the tree or something in the middle of the court that doesn't make any sense that's when <laughs> that's when it would come out yeah or and and even then you'd have to wonder like 
the, my first duty here is to my client. And what's the best result for my client right now? Is the, is the judge I know to be senile leaning my client's way? Or do I risk like angering them? What do I think is going to happen on the other side of that? I might just tell my client to settle. Look, you just need to get out of this situation. I'm sorry. The legal process is supposed to help you here. I cannot fucking help you. In this case, it is it is deeply <laughs> and frighteningly broken. I will settle yeah. and get the motherfucker yeah. out of here. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's way more than courage. And I think if you encourage lawyers to start doing that, then they would start using it as, as this podcast notes. All lawyers are bastards. They would use that yeah. as strategically as possible. So you really couldn't even yeah, rely on a formal adversarial process on, on you know kicking it to the lawyers. Well, and in fact, uh, calling back to the Shondia Simpson issue, you know, I mean, right now the the the, the dispute between uh, Cruz's lawyers and the DA is, you know, the DA is now saying, you know, you're only you're only raising these issues uh, with the hearing because of the because you didn't like the way it went. <laughs> Which you no, know, and no if, shit. <laughs> if she had ruled in, if she had if she had gone batshit crazy and ruled in your favor, you'd be fine with it. Uh, and in fact, we believe that, that the best sign of the fact that Sean Dio Simpson was, was mentally impaired is the fact that she granted you a hearing in the first place. Uh, you know, so. God damn. Wow. You're right. You're right, yeah. Tarek. You're right, Tarek. I, I do think DAs can be better than PEDs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe I recant uh, my statement from up top. <laughs> On paper, Justice Laura Higley is still on the job. Her photo displayed among all the justices at the first court of appeals. But staffers tell us no cases are assigned to her in all of November, and they don't know if any cases will be assigned to her in the future. The issue, according to an application for permanent guardian filed by her adult sons, is that the justice has Alzheimer's. And according to court documents, Justice Higley is mentally, quote, in the moment only meaning that Justice Higley can carry on brief conversations and exchange simple pleasantries. I mean, but nevertheless, I mean, if you just if you just start peeling uh, back at like the first veneer of this, uh, you start to find uh, any number of them, right? <clears throat> There's the judge in Houston where her, uh, her kids uh, filed an application for guardianship, trying to get her off the court. Which is usually right? usually a strong sign that there might be something. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. right. She's a Texas. Like, it's basically saying she's a danger to the public. Yeah, she's on the uh, court of appeals in, in Houston. And the mm-hmm. first notice anybody gets is her son's filing an application for fucking guardianship. Sounds like a really chill court, you know? Like, you just go there and hang, hang out, you know? Nobody's really giving each other a hard time. I mean, if I, I gotta say, if I had lost an appeal and this judge had been on the panel and I see that fucking news article, man, I'm gonna blow my, I'm gonna yeah. blow my stack. Usually where these things kind of come to the most dramatic head, uh, is in cases involving personal liberty. And there's the Deer v. Cullen case involving a death row inmate. This shit is disturbing. Uh, yeah, this is... Filing this a habeas this petition. notable in, in all of these cases. Yeah, so Deer v. Cullen is a death row inmate habeas petition. Um, as we were saying earlier, that this, this affects liberty interests. It's a death row inmate. Uh, this is as high as stakes can get in a federal court. And the argument is that the sentencing judge was senile. So the district court says, I'm not even going to hear this, denies an evidentiary hearing. Ninth Circuit affirms. The panel 
dismissed three affidavits from attorneys who had practiced before the sentencing judge. These attorneys came in after the fact. I don't think they challenged the judge at the time, but they came in after the fact, you know, owing to the survival instinct that we talked about earlier. um, (laughs) You might only offer these opinions after the fact. Let me just intercede. I mean, this is important. And I think habeas is is a great place for these issues to come up, both because of the, you know, the sort of the stakes – are as high as they possibly could be in the legal system. But habeas has the other benefit of kind of being post-conviction review in another court system, right? So you can go to a bunch of federal judges uh, uh, and talk maybe potentially more openly than you can uh, directly to the Mm. judge or within that that specific court system. Right. I mean, not to say the affidavits won't get back, but, you know, I mean, these these are fairly routinely filed. But in any case, uh, it's easy. And in fact, that's one of the reasons, and I'm not sure, but practice point. Right? Like, it's one of the reasons that, that habeas, I think, gets short shrift in federal court. It's because the feeling in the federal judiciary is, oh, it's easy for you to come back now, 20 years later, and say that you're defense lawyer was asleep and and the police beat a confession out of you why didn't you raise that in the court directly Uh, and this is exactly one of those situations where where of course uh this is why you wouldn't uh, have raised it in the court directly because you're in front of the fucking judge uh, whose brains are oozing out of his ears right in front of you i mean once you hear the facts about this guy so so this is one of these cases that it is a habeas petition for coming from many years later uh, the guy was convicted in like 86 or something. I can't remember exactly. But uh, the the judge's name was Judge Metheny. And so these attorneys um, have been sought out by this, uh, plan- by this uh, defendant's counsel to kind of get accounts of this judge because I guess counsel had you know, done some done some detective work and figured out like wait something was up with this guy what the fuck was going on in this in this uh, trial so these attorneys give these various accounts so one of them says uh, in pertinent part in the in the affidavit he says look Judge Metheny comes off the bench following an evidentiary objection by me I, I make an evidentiary objection objection you know you can't admit that evidence hearsay whatever the guy comes off the bench gets right in front of him assumes a three-point stance in the floor in the open courtroom <laughs> tells him get down on the floor opposite me. i'm gonna knock you into the i'm gonna knock you into the parking lot this guy is trying to play fucking football with him now, is he like flashing back to like his college football days or something? That, that's that what he was. Yeah, I think he played. He played for Nebraska. That's right. I say. And so, yeah, yeah. I think it was just like a weird kind of just bubbling through of that stuff. Yeah, you object to hearsay, and all of a sudden, that's it. You're on the fucking defensive line. Let's go. I, well, we gotta we gotta look into all the concussion decisions now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another time, another time, Judge Metheny comes down. This is another attorney. Judge Metheny, exasperated about something, comes down from the bench and says, listen, I assume everybody in this court is good, are good Christian people, and, and they should settle this case. They should settle this dispute. It shouldn't be going on this long. It was like a small claims case that, for some reason, had gone on for some time. And he starts shaking everybody's hands, including the people in the gallery, uh, and saying, <laughs> everybody here is a Christian. <laughs> And then he just fucking dismisses the case. <laughs> I got to say, I know he's gone and all that. It's kind of fundamentally not what a judge should do. It's kind of not their role. <laughs> Actually, Tim, I'm going to, you know, as an advocate of Sharia law. <laughs> I was going to say, if you read 
American law as just Christian Sharia law, everything makes a lot more sense. Why go through this whole process? Why not just uh, resolve it amongst yourselves like good Christians? I think that's <laughs> yeah. uh, excellent jurisprudence. <laughs> as a judge saying that. He, th- th- another attorney says uh, that one time he just started talking to the jury about me and uh, and saying that my wife was constantly complaining to him that I stayed out too late at night. And he says, this is out of the blue and not connected to anything that was going on. And I don't know the guy. We have no relationship. Right. Anyway, all of these stories come in. The Ninth Circuit says, fuck off. Uh, this is just excent- uh, this is these are just eccentricities. Um, and, and they're making this kind of cowardly decision where they say basically what they're worried about here is that if we grant one of these things, it's going to open the floodgates and we're going to get a million cases all citing to this case saying, yeah, my judge was senile too. And the dissent calls them out rightly and and just like obliterates them in the first sentence says, the majority holds that a judge suffering from dementia may sentence a man to death. I disagree. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I will take a step back to be fair and pose the question, where do you draw the line? You know, is not knowing an email, you know, about the existence of email, a sign of your mental impairment is deriding. Are we deriding judges? Uh, is, is that age discrimination in itself? What, what recourse do judges have as uh, proletarian workers of the, you know, <laughs> yeah. the newest, the newest edition, you know, of the shittiest branch. Judges are workers. judges are not PMC. <laughs> judges are not PMC. <laughs> They're workers. I mean, but where do you draw the line? You know, like where? What do you actually do? You know, do you create a court where you know they can appeal if they're fired? Um, who fires them? You know. Well, this gets back to what I was saying before, right? I mean, like. Uh, the Republican fervor for uh, finding that nobody is covered by uh, rights-granting statutes such as the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. Um, uh, somehow, nobody's, again, acted on that with the fervor they've acted on, say, Janus or other things. But, um, yeah, I mean, there is a, an issue there where, as Tim said, lawyers being bastards, I'm sure there's plenty of people who would love to just start you know, throwing any older judge that rules against them up against the wall uh, and seeing what sticks. But yeah, and you can um, imagine what Disney would be able to do with that, or let's just say Chevron would be able to do with that if they were able exactly. to, to take over judges' lives. Like well, that. I mean, look, look, I agree that the the issues that Leah just raised and the issue you raised earlier, Tim, about bad faith uh, abuse of this kind of process, I agree that those are problems and that those are issues that have to be solved, but they have to be fucking solved. Right. It, th- those right. are problems that you address on the way to creating a process. Mm-hmm. And the issue that we have now is that the pendulum is so far swung on the other side that just there's nobody at the wheel. There's no you're process. just in the fucking car. Grandpa falls asleep and you're like, well, I, I hope he doesn't fucking that, drive uh, off the road. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Andy, that's not how we work in this banana republic. We. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, it isn't. And I think what's interesting, Leo, is that. The GOP has kind of sidestepped yeah. this by making it very much in their interest not to hold on to power for that. Right. Long. The Trump administration has a point. I have no idea how many judges they've done, but it's in the hundreds. And most of them are like fucking 28 year old associates from Kirkland and Alice <laughs> or something that like, you know, they've done one M&A case and all of a sudden they find themselves in the fucking D.C. circuit. 
because they were in fed sock and law well, school. You know, well, I mean, th- but they also know, you know, like a lot of these guys are going to and and women. Sorry, I don't want to get canceled um, and trans people. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't I don't think Trump is appointing any trans judges. To the <laughs> they're going to quit at some point because they're going to be tired of making 200 grand or whatever the federal judiciary salary is. And they're going to go cash in and make two million at some law firm. You know, and like this is the problem with liberals. They're going to be they're happy to stay on to make 200 grand and, you know, just live, you know, lap up that prestige. And I think a lot of this is what happens at universities, too. You know, like there's a liberal bias at universities because liberals are willing to, like, stay there making 50 grand and bossing around their their TAs. It's just like a different value system. Yeah, I mean that's just an, that's just an extra factor when it comes time to strategically retire. Is that if they know that they can just go to some firm and just start making money for real, I mean they'll they'll retire at fifty and then just get you know the judge the judgeship will just pass between thirty five year old to thirty five. Although it is a perverse you know, incentive fossils. for Democrats to wish like horrible early onset senility to the Trump judges, like. <laughs> <laughs> Which I do unequivocally, but, just on the record. I mean, I think they're they're gonna all catch like QAnon brain instead and just start ruling yeah. that like the deep state pedophile <laughs> is actually in charge of the case. You know, I feel like President Trump has been unfairly maligned uh, in, <laughs> in many ways, but we have to give him credit for addressing the senility. He issue. has acted to correct this. I agree. Yeah, he has taken aggressive action in this uh, by by nominating a bunch of. 30-year-old nutbags. <laughs> so I think we should take some time out to recognize that accomplishment. Thank you, sir. On your way out, we salute. One court that is very heavily affected by strategic retirement, timed uh, decisions to retire underneath an executive who will appoint your replacement, uh, is the FISA court. So the federal, I'm sorry, the the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Um, That is a very specific court that reviews warrant requests, uh, applications for electronic surveillance, and other forms uh, of investigation for foreign intelligence surveillance purposes. These Basically, these are the people who decide the scope of surveillance statutes. So when you used to hear about those bulk collection statutes where they could you know, go out three hops from one call, these are the people who would decide how many hops they could go, what the statute actually authorized, what was reasonable. Um, these are the people who authorized those warrants. Okay? Right. Um, and they have an enormous amount of power over these national security type issues. Uh, and SCOTUS has punted repeatedly on cases coming from them they they kick plaintiffs out on standing they do they do every kind of backflip to avoid actually reviewing uh fisk decisions fisa court decisions um i mean, they look at some but like uh it's the 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 amnesty the clapper decision is the one i'm thinking of in particular i'm not going to go into it now but they they adopt a very odd theory of standing basically to just never have to look at the issue um 
Right. So the FISA court is essentially the last word on most of this shit. Like and so that's... Unreviewable policy making being done in this. Exactly court. right. And so they're the last word on this stuff. And the court has 11 seats. And the way it works is that every single one of these 11 seats is appointed by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. There's no congressional approval. There's no oversight. There's no input from anybody else. It's just the chief judge. I don't know why the fuck they do this. It is fucking stupid, <laughs> but it's just the chief judge. You could think of a dozen other ways to do this, right? You could nominate by conference. You could allow each justice to yeah. say you could allow the chief judge of, or you could allow, you know, circuits to nominate. There's a, a tons of ways to do it. Instead, it's just one guy. That guy is John Roberts. He is a Republican. <laughs> and every fucking chief justice on the court since... The FISA court was created in 1978, has been a Republican too. How, why? Yeah, do you is know that? why? Because why? Tell, uh, how, how did because that the Republican <laughs> Chief Justice makes sure to retire <laughs> under a Republican president, and then the president appoints the next Chief Justice. Guess what? Guess who he picks? One of his guys. It doesn't go by seniority. Yeah. It's not like oh, the oldest judge is right. now the Chief Judge. It's not how it fucking works. John Roberts is not when the, the, when the incumbent you know, when when Roberts retires in 2028 his his wow. 12 year old replacement <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> President Tom Cotton uh, will be will be uh, Chief Justice. So every single FISA court judge ever has been appointed by a Republican. And like, what effect do you think that has on the construction of foreign intelligence surveillance statutes? Is it good? the point i wanted to make with this the reason i stuffed this i shoehorned this into the outline is that i see when we're talking about strategic retirement which is a you know a very relevant issue with respect to aging on the bench and why perhaps we shouldn't even be seeing these you know superannuated judges because you should be timely getting out of there to ensure a young replacement that is you know perhaps along your ideological you know thinking uh, Ruth, if you're listening from the afterlife. Yeah, uh, if you're looking you know, up at us and listening. <laughs> people now sort of get strategic retirement after the after the Ginsburg death. People kind of get it. I see all sorts of non-lawyers talking about it, all sorts of columnists. I saw like Jamal Bowie talking about it like last week or something. Well, even, even the people that were doing the notorious RBG shit, uh, inventing it. Uh, five years ago, <laughs> right. or whatever. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Are are now are now saying, oh, you know, I think it was a mistake. Uh, oh. I'm sorry. I, you know. <laughs> oh my god. That that yeah, that I'm grift sorry. did not age well. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, no. <laughs> no. They'll talk about the the Ginsburg thing, and then they'll talk about the judiciary broadly, and how Trump has appointed a ton of appellate courts and a ton of district court judges. And they'll say like, "We've lost the judiciary for a generation. We lost it for my lifetime." And just like you don't fucking get it, you did not lose it for your lifetime. You lost it for as long as they can keep the combo up. There has not been a single FISA court judge appointed by a Democrat justice in the entire life of the court. That's how long they've kept the combo up. How long do you think they can yeah. go? That's how long they own the judiciary. We were all happy when Scalia died. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, doing what he loved. Autoerotic <laughs> asphy- asphyxiation while hunting or whatever he was doing. But, you know, he's now been replaced by three even more Catholic guys who are like 50. Yeah. Right. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. like it's always what yeah, Scalia, that was awesome. Uh, but things have gotten incredibly more Way worse. fucking so, worse. Yeah. yeah. But uh, strategic retirement. Uh, is something that we get, I guess, now, maybe. We understand it. But uh, 
It's too late. Right. It's it's too yeah. late. The, reti- the retirements were already strategically done. It's too late. Yes. But it, it, it's also something that pe- you know people get it now after watching RBG get replaced by you know a lady with knives for teeth. But every level of the judiciary has to consider strategic retirement. It's not just it's not just the Supreme Court. If you retired under Trump as a district court judge, you're a racist. If you got Alzheimer's and shifted off the court. Under Trump, you're a racist. If you died in a car accident, also, you got replaced by a guy. So you're a racist. That's my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, also, just real quick, the strategic retirement doesn't work in, say, you know, somewhere like Illinois or Maryland, where the the strategy is to stay on as long as humanly possible so that you can kind of effectuate the concerns of whatever local Democrat machine is, is in power. You know, so and and that doesn't solve when that person goes, you know, senile. You know, there's no strategic retirement for them to, to go to. So so that you know, it's well, also, also it's just like papering over. I mean, we're just taking for granted that there's at least at the federal level, there's nothing we can fucking do, right? Because of Article Article Three, right. lifetime appointments, good behavior, whatever. You know, when Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> everywhere else in the world there are terms and you know i mean i don't want to get like all politics brain here either right you know i mean i think there's strategic retirements because you know republicans are psychotic and democrats are they have a different kind of psychotic psychotic. yeah. (laughs) yeah um but like you know there's also just retirement because you're not competent to manage issues that in many cases are literally this guy and whether or not the tracksuit his wife spent half her check on uh, coming to court to give you uh, is going to be worn by you on the way out or not, right? Like, I mean, you're not competent at some point or you're running the risk of not being competent to rule on issues that are of extreme importance to literal human beings and their liberty. And, you know, I just, there, there, there is, I think, that, that as well, which is just the, the things that that are occurring, uh, some of the stories that we've talked about, are Im- beyond just the political, immoral, you know, and 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 tragic. Yeah, and and to to me, I think what it does is it highlights kind of the absurdity of what you know our our conception of of the law and kind of court and legal society is because. The court is supposed to be this area where logic and facts are supposed to 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 triumph over justice and emotion. I remember at DOJ at the, at the central building, there's this like fancy mural of like a judge standing in front of a mob, and it's like the idea is like you know that like justice will overtake mob rule or whatever. Um, but you can't do that if you know you get a judge that's over eighty and they have a fifty percent chance of just being completely out to lunch. You know, you there's right. no way to make like no no touch right. with reality. Yeah. Yeah, there's totally no way to make a, a a reasoned, rational argument to somebody like that, uh, because they just they're not even going to remember it in two minutes. And so it's it to me, it's really funny to think about, you know, when people talk about Iran being ruled by like these shadowy clerics that like <laughs> run the country for life or anything like that. Like to me, it's like like you know, Ayatollah Khomeini is 81. Like it's I would not be surprised at all if if you know he had some obviously there's no reports of it or anything, but. You know, if he had mental issues, it would be totally in line with his age. But at least to him, his his mandate, his claim to to power is that he has kind of been, you know, revealed knowledge or, or knows about, you know, what what God has told him. And, you know, 
him following the teachings of the hidden imam, which is a hell of a lot more <laughs> than Ruth Bader Ginsburg was able to say, at, you know, with her stint at the Supreme Court. Like, how the fuck is somebody that claims reason and logic, but then goes and sleeps in the fucking state of the union supposed to be able to claim that mandate? <laughs> <laughs> Bouncy ball, it's an Oslo bouncy ball, it's a Rio de Janeiro.